Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of Entrepreneurs of Asia. This is a show where we talk to the entrepreneurs, founders, and investors shaping the startup ecosystem of Asia. After a long time and a lot of deliberation, I decided to finally bite the bullet and start this project. Uh, I have my first guest here today who I'm very excited about with. Uh, his name is Kevin Ho. I've known him for 1.5 years. Uh, he's a guy who I often turn to advice for. We talked about work and problems, uh, a lot of jamming, and uh, we got a lot of respect for him. Um, so, Kevin, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, how have you been doing during this COVID crisis? Good. Um, you know, mostly staying at home. Actually, the interesting thing was I moved back to KL from Singapore right before the MCO started. Okay, good timing. So uh, pretty much uh, once I was back, uh, I had about 10 days of break where I was traveling to Sarawak uh, just to take a break. I remember dur- this was during the actual, uh, when it was, the crisis was ramping up. That's right. right. So yeah. I wanted to stay away from the crisis. I uh, just wanted to go somewhere to disconnect. And, uh, you know, on the first day of MCO, I actually flew back from Sarawak. Uh, thank God I could come into KL. Uh, and since then, I, you know, just took a short break and then started working uh, from there. Yeah. And you have a very interesting profile. Uh, you've been working in the tech space since um, 2013, right? Yep. Yeah. And I think uh, you were the early pioneer for Airbnb, looking at my notes, uh, expansion for Asia. And uh, later on, you did a venture builder model with your Airbnb uh, ex-colleagues with the hype. Mm-hmm. Uh, and currently, if, from what I understand, you are now a venture partner. I guess we can go into what that actually means later. And mm-hmm. I don't know how you found the time. It says you're also a mentor for the Global Launch <laughs> Program for 500 Startups. And you're a mentor for the Singapore Tourism Accelerator. I don't actually do that much work. <laughs> Well, we can discuss that later. And um, most recently, and interesting, I think, and one of the main topics I'd love to discuss with you is uh, recently you've made a big move away from tech back into the world of traditional business. And I've, uh, I believe it's your family business, right? That's correct. Yeah. So before we get into that, you know, I kind of would like to know a little bit more about your story. You know, after knowing you 1.5 years, I knew the general details and some stories we shared here and there. Um, I saw that you actually studied in London, and I think it was around the same time I did. Uh, I think I was probably leaving while you were just entering. Sure. And you went to UCL, very, very good school. Sure. Very smart. You know, yeah. some famous. Where did you go? I went. <laughs> I was at the LSE. Oh, okay. But only a general course program. I did not, uh, you know, graduate from there. Uh, so, what I'd like to know is. And I think some of our listeners would be very interested, especially for the younger guys, or maybe people looking to pivot into tech. I mean, it's, uh, there seems to be a gap, right? You, in 2012, you graduated, but then all of a sudden you're working for Airbnb. How did that happen? So I actually didn't actually put that experience up on LinkedIn um, because it was still a period of self-discovery. Uh, I came back from the UK and uh, I immediately joined the family business. However, uh, I didn't quite get used to the culture and the work uh, because I, I wanted something more fast-paced and I decided to you know, created a startup on my own on the side. And this was the first time that I had started a business and didn't even know what business was about. I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. I just felt like doing it. Uh, so I contacted a friend whom I hadn't really spoken much to for the last maybe six, seven years prior to that. He was a primary school friend and said, hey, let's do something together. Okay. Uh, so we actually got together and, uh, you know, came up with a few concepts and ideas. And this was the hype of marketplaces, right? We were talking about companies like Uber, Airbnb. I was a big fan of Airbnb back then. Uh, and we created a marketplace for uh, foodies, like people who just wanted to oh, okay. share you know, food experiences. What was the name? It was called Hungry Hippie. Hungry Hippie. Is it still around? Uh, we still have the domain name. Uh, we've taken down the website. Ah, um, okay. But if you search Hungry Hippie Welcome Post, you'll actually find an article about uh, an RIP article of our company. Yeah. Um, that exist and uh, and and you know they cover the story of how we went, how we started, and how we went bust like in a in less than a year time. <laughs> less than a year. So okay. um, you know that was the reason why you know there was nothing much about that one year gap, but because I, I was you know in, in a discovery mode, and eventually through my experience building a startup, I had learned more and more about Airbnb, and there was an opportunity that came through, and I applied for the job, and I, and I eventually got it, and the rest was history. Okay, so that's, there's a, quite a few things to unpack. That's, uh, so you, you were running Hungry Hippie. Did you have the man bun back then too? No, I did not. You didn't have the man bun. Okay. So you were a little bit cleaner looking. Very um, clean, yeah. And it's Fresh. very... Fresh yeah. from college. 
And I think it's an interesting pattern. So you actually started in the family business. And then, um, and I think this is very common, I think, in Southeast Asia where, you know, I think you have family companies that you know, there's this expectation to go work into them, but then they're either immediately driven away after college. They don't go back to it. Um, they don't see the opportunity for innovation or change. Uh, and they, but they kind of do this exploration. And lots of times, I think back then, 2000, uh, the, I guess they're called the aughts, right, or 2010, the next decade, is when I think a lot of the changes happen for Southeast Asia ecosystem. Um, and then uh, it seems that you, I think what's very key and what I hear is that you started your own company, right? And I think that's what a lot of young people maybe are thinking, you know, like they, I think they, they think they have to follow this pattern. I must go to uh, investment banking. I must be this lawyer. And then I can go into startups. That's a very common thing I hear. And then it uh, sounds that you just took the dive, which is great. Uh, and then I, what I find most interesting is that you just actually applied randomly. Uh, so there was no special connection. Um, it was just uh, well, it was like you saw a job posting or? Yeah. So, you know, uh, of course, when I started the company, I was very, very naive. Uh, yeah. And I feel like all of us will experience that um, when you have ideas or when you are ambitious you don't listen to what people tell you I mean there were so many people that said you know what what is a crazy idea or uh, why do you have to start a company for this why do you just do it as a side project um, but then eventually we did it anyway and we learned a lot um, so with Airbnb it was it was very serendipitous right it was a job posting it was literally what I had prayed for um, because I was always looking to join Airbnb, I was literally looking at their website like once every two weeks. Oh, wow. And then one day a job post posting just posts up that says market manager for Malaysia. Mm. And I instantly felt like that role is for me, like that was designed <laughs> for me. And uh, of course I went through a rigorous uh, you know, process of interviews for two, two months. I spoke two to, months? I spoke to like 12 or 10 people in the company. That was intense. And at one point, my mom was asking, are you interviewing for the role of CEO? I was like, no, I'm just this low-level person. Um, but, you know, uh, you know they, they really wanted to find the right fit and, and hence the, the lengthy interview process. And, and what was the process? Like, uh, was it just all one-on-one -one talking? Was there, uh, was it analytical? Did you have to do tests? Did you get to talk to the founders? Um, so it was... A mix of that, but probably less analytical um, because the role they wanted was somebody who could do several roles. Mm -hmm. um, I think what they really cared about the most in the early days, and this was when Airbnb was only at 500 people size. Mm -hmm. and today it was, I mean, pre, pre the, the layoff, it was close to 3,000, 4,000. Yeah. Um, and what was very important to them early day was the right culture fit. Yeah. So it was a lot of culture-related question, um, and they will always ask you things about um, you know, what, what is your how, how are you a good host? Or it could be about what do you think about, you know, if you were given a million dollars today, how would you spend it? So mm -hmm. questions that were a little bit to test your personality and your values. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we also spoke to people from different countries. Like I remember talking to the, to the German country manager and it was completely irrelevant to my role. I was talking to the Russian general manager, the Spanish general manager, okay. and at multi-layer levels as well, right? Yeah. Um, to of course they wanted to know my abilities but of course also um, my uh, my experience from starting up my previous company and then also my values yeah. so uh, it was a it was a good process I actually really enjoyed it meeting and talking for two months for two months I think there was a lot of delays okay, okay. Um, but then speaking to about 10 people in a spread of two months okay. I think it was a good experience for me to also get to know the company yeah and I think that's a good point because I think we've had conversations about this before and I think one of the things you highlighted that this Airbnb has a soul. What, what does that mean? And it seems that it might click with you know, why they talk about culture and how does a startup have soul? Yeah, I think soul, and, and I really like this topic because sometimes you also ask yourself as a, as a human entity, as a person, yeah. what does a soul mean? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've gone through this phase of self-discovery of, I mean, I think all of us have probably asked ourselves why we exist. <laughs> I don't know if everyone has. Well, but <laughs> at some point of your life, you will ask yourself. I think it's maybe why we're friends. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's early in your life than later, because yeah. if it's later, then it's, it's really bad. Um, but of course, uh, you know, what, what, does, uh, what does the soul mean? And to me, it's accumulation, for human beings at least, it's an accumulation of all your experiences, uh, your memories, uh, and if you scale that up to the context of an organization, uh, it's accumulation of everyone's 
experiences and memories, and mm -hmm. it boils down to the people. Mm -hmm. So um, the way the reason why Airbnb was so unique was because they they've managed to scale their organization by design, which means uh, they've codified a lot of their values and their mission yeah. in a way that it's easy for people to understand, even though they're not founders mm -hmm. or early employees. Mm -hmm. So you often find there's a tension as a fast-growing startup when you have the early employees who are uh, almost forming a cult versus the yes. newcomers yes. who are like the adults, right. right? But what Airbnb has done was they managed to bridge that by codifying yeah. uh, the values so that it's easy to translate to everyone yeah. and there's no ambiguity. Yeah. So, um, so I guess for Airbnb uniquely, of course, the mission is to you know, help people belong anywhere. Yeah. And that goes, that runs deep into a lot of people's uh, values, yeah. especially for our hosts and guests who travels, uh, and hosts who, you know, of course they, um, and what they provide to the travelers are unique experiences and to help them feel belong. So what everybody had done was they had done it first with the employees, and the employees had done it for the community outside of Airbnb. Yeah. And I think that's a huge theme and why a lot of San Francisco startups achieve that scale and capture that value. Um, I think thematically, especially in Southeast Asia, I, I've done my, my fair share of interviewing at these larger successful unicorn startups. And I think that's a big question that maybe they're not focusing as heavily. Um, I think the way they were formed was maybe more top down, you know, a soft bank approach where big money comes in and uh, that maybe they're kind of work, working backwards to find their soul. Um, Sometimes I like to use that metaphor for Singapore as well, how it would, you know, rapidly industrialized and it's you know, culturally still you know, has to kind of define itself over time. And I think that's a very good point you know, that, that we could talk about is that they have been able to scale culture and that's a big part of their success. And I think not many people know this. There's a very interesting backstory. Um, so back, back in the day before Airbnb did their uh, expansion. Uh, Rocket Internet was probably one, a rising star at the time. Rocket Internet being the uh, German, uh, I guess, venture builder, you could say. They had a lot of success um, uh, before that, you know, especially with cloning. And this is what they're infamous for. And, and, and I think they still have a very bad rep in Silicon Valley, but they, they cloned uh, Groupon and they sold it to, I think the founder's name is Andrew Mason, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, phoned it, they, uh, they sold it successfully to him. And then Apparently, there was a clone called um, Wimdu, yeah. and uh, I think there was a, a big thing where the deal almost kind of got through, but then I'm, I'm not sure. I want to ask around. It's, maybe you know what happened. I heard there was a fallout between the Samwar brothers and, and the founders. I, I've heard some podcasts and interviews where they, they loosely talk about how you know, they asked around and then you know, they, they kind of, maybe they looked into their soul. They, they looked into their culture and decided not to do it, and maybe that's why they were so successful at scaling. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that that, that was a, a critical thing for them to survive? So uh, it's interesting you bring it up. Obviously, you've done your homework. Um, if, if you want to hear the detailed story, it's better to read the Airbnb book. Um, okay. So don't, don't quote me uh, <laughs> what, I, what I say. I, I only experience it through what I hear from my, my, my previous colleagues. So uh, what I understand was, uh, obviously, when Airbnb was a success story in the U.S., uh, clearly, obviously, other companies will start uh, duplicating their business models. Yes. I mean, Windu was one of the one of them, uh, and uh, Airbnb, uh, Airbnb had that inflection point of them deciding whether they want to go full on internet internationalization or not. Yeah. Right? And as a travel business, you have to. They've already have their notes built out uh, all over the world. It's just that they needed more localization. So, uh, in fact, Windu was the reason why. Air Brian Chesky and, and I guess the, the founders had decided to step on the pedal of international internationalization. They offered them to buy them. If not, they will continue to scale and build and mm -hmm. probably destroy their market yes. uh, or take over their market share. So they had the Brian had the um, you know the, the dilemma of deciding whether to buy a company that probably have have no not much alignment in values, mm -hmm. like in terms of uh, culture culture and values because uh, they they were a rocket company. <laughs> yeah. and they're infamous for. What, they do. What, what does that mean? Uh, for, it, for means, know. it means they uh, are super efficient, but they are inhumane. Right? No soul. No soul. Yeah. yeah. So they, they just get shit done, um, and uh, you know they fire if they have to fire. They hire if they have to hire. They they just hire doers, but maybe not mm. people with hearts. Yeah. I mean, you you are an exception, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know then then you know then then they can scale and move fast. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is not necessarily. Like growth is not 
the only thing that is important for Brian yeah. and, and the company. So interestingly, they had actually decided to buy a competitor to Windu. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, don't, don't quote me on this, but uh, it was another company uh, that was based in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Hamburg. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they decided to scale through this company. So then, since then, I believe they've raised a, a round of funding to then scale interna internationalization and starting with Hamburg. And I believe they opened like something like 20 offices in a year. Mm. And, 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 and the rest is history, of course. Yeah. Windu was, um, you know, uh, they were beaten Windu. And that's because they made the decision to stick to what they believe in mm -hmm. and not to just go for short, short term gains. Mm -hmm. And then, so what, I guess you were part of that story early on. Um, I guess Europe was probably the first step. And I think they probably had a huge amount of learning. So when, when you started Malaysia for Airbnb, what was that like? Uh, what were the challenges? Did they have a playbook ready? Um, what did you have to do? What was it? Yeah, in the early days, you know, we were given this ridiculous title called market expert. And, uh, you know, it was just an expert. It was just a title for you to be a generalist. Yeah. So at the early days, we had a playbook. Uh, you know, as a marketplace, you usually have to build supply and demand. Um, and uh, you know, we we were always oscillating between doubling down on supply versus doubling on demand. But in the early days, you really will need to make sure that you hit a minimum viable number of quality listings before you can see that uh, that accelerated growth. So a lot of the work in the early days is really to build it, build supply. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had teams that. Uh, literally would just do phone calls and call our posts every day and you know sometimes help them type their their description for their their listings and we will guide them on how to take photos so brian has a famous um uh, you know uh, quote where he says uh, do things that don't scale so we were literally taking this playbook to go to far off places in, in, in southeast asia or even 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 asia to to do supply acquisition so we were given a target of like x amount of supply you have to get to or in terms of uh, active list, active listings, so we need to make sure that even though they are listed, they must be booked. So it was very much, um, you know, a funnel where we need to make sure that all the listings are uh, quality and they're booked and they convert. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, we did that for a good six months to a year. I mean, when I joined, I was, you know, I think Malaysia only had, I think Malaysia only had five hundred listings or something, mm -hmm. and I would meet the top ten percent of the hosts, right, like yeah. fifty hosts. And it was a really strong community. Everyone really felt like Airbnb was something that they um, you know, can really leverage to grow or rather to connect with people, uh, to make extra income. Uh, and then you know, from, from there, we got a lot of feedback on how we can you know, help them or build that product uh, for them. And then from there, we could really seal. And then the rest is really the product that does the work yeah. right? of how it scales itself. So over time, you know, we, we were just really hands off, uh, and, and we we looked at community building through a different model instead of one on one because you can't. I mean, once you've once you've figured out uh, the minimum viable listing, you you can't continue to uh, hire people to do all. That. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make business sense. Yeah. So I think the rest, uh, the product, really took off and helped uh, Airbnb scale. I think that's very uh, a powerful statement, and it's very subtle. Um, and a lot of founders, especially what, I, what I've noticed, a pattern that I meet a lot of young guys in Southeast Asia is that um, they're trying to rush scaling before the product can do the heavy lifting. You know, it's just not a strong product market fit. And I think that's uh, something very important to highlight is that, you know, getting the product right. And, you know, I think they had a good head start in the U.S. They probably were very design centric and probably culturally in nature, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then um, and that was a big contrast to a lot of the other startups we're probably seeing in the region now. Mm -hmm. Uh, who maybe just be trying to buying market share and this kind of thing, and um, and I think that's a big part of scale, which is interesting, and and I think that, so that, that was a, a very good experience. Probably uh, pivotal was four years, right? More, more than four and a half, more, years. Four and a half years, and uh, I think what resulted was you know uh, I think as Peter Thiel famously somehow coined or you know it's the the PayPal mafia, I guess. What you had was the Airbnb mafia, and then that kind of led to your next experience with uh, Hype. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe you could start up by telling me what, what is Hype and um, what does it do? So Hype uh, is a venture builder that helps startups that are looking to grow their uh, uh, expansion uh, or expand their business overseas. Yeah. So we essentially work with you know early stage companies, typically around Series A, B, um, to help them build a uh, strategy for go to market. You know, in terms of deciding which country to go to, 
how much do you actually need to open up a market, um, you know, what kind of tactics you need to build your users, uh, and uh, any things on the regulatory side that you need to look out for. So that's purely on a strategy, strategy side. And then the other part of the business is really looking at um, you know, launcher as a service. Mm-hmm. So how can we plant a uh, market launcher or a GM for you to scale your business fast? Um, so we usually are uh, seconded for a period of six to 12 months where we're acting as an interim uh, launcher. Mm-hmm. And you know, not all companies have huge amount of capital or, or, or a ready playbook to go to launch new markets. Mm-hmm. Right? Typically, you only hear people like Airbnb, Uber, in fact, actually, there's a side story. We may actually work with a venture builder in the early days. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, and some okay. of them were actually uh, ex Group One people. So there are a lot of ah, stories. It's all, it's all interlinked to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, and of course, um, you know, yeah, without the playbook, it's difficult for you to, to do it, um, and especially if you don't have the people. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I think it's very it's a very unique skill set to have to do market launch. Yeah. Because you you can't just be um, you know you can't be too experienced too high level. Neither can you be too junior and uh, you know so too junior too inexperienced. So you gotta uh, find the right balance yeah. so that uh, you know you can you can do both the heavy lifting mm. on a day to day and then also the strategy. Yes, correct. Okay, and so what? What? How's that different from like say a startup studio or accelerator? Um, what? What? You know, what's yeah, the difference? Yeah, I think for us we have a, little, a bit more skin in the game, uh, mm-hmm. wherein we will actually you know have some stake with the business. In some cases, we also do uh, operating investing. Um, and uh, our work is, uh, you know, uh, we, we bring the business from zero to one. So we look at, we're actually given a set of KPI mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, given a set of budget and yeah. we're told to go spend that money and bring growth yeah. right? or, or, or hire a team mm-hmm. and uh, uh, build up operations, build up customer mm-hmm. service. So all that is actually done by the venture builder. Mm-hmm. As opposed to say as an accelerator, I think a lot of the work is, you know, of course, uh, advising them on uh, areas of their business. Uh, and also maybe just doing some referrals or networking, uh, connecting them to investors, whereas our work is actually getting our hands really dirty. So we are actually the face of the business as well. Yeah, I guess accelerators would be more of coaching, um, and you know it's usually for a seed round, a small percentage, and then um, there's usually some traction. So what you're telling me is that you could sometimes even come earlier or, or even later, and uh, your, I guess your job is the same though, except you take more ownership and probably more, more equity to, to get to that next level. Um, and then what was your specific role for Hype then? So I was uh, basically like a market lead for Singapore and Malaysia. So any companies that are looking to expand into Singapore and Malaysia, I would help um, with the work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, for example, one of my biggest projects was working with a company called Homage. Mm-hmm. They're, they're an uh, elder, elder care, uh, uh, healthcare platform where they connect uh, care professionals to people who need caregiving services and nursing services. Um, so uh, I basically helped them scale from zero to one in Malaysia. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was the interim general manager. So, uh, and there were also other portfolio companies where uh, on the strategic level, they would usually need help. Like, you know, what is the right way to enter the market in Malaysia? What is the right way to enter the market in Singapore? Or sometimes uh, for companies who don't really know Southeast Asia that well, I was also helping to, you know, advise. Mm-hmm. So essentially you were the guy getting a hand 30. Um, and I guess your, your main project was homage. Yeah. And how, how are they doing? They're doing quite well. Uh, I think uh, probably raised a round of funding Series B around last year, late last year, I mm-hmm. believe. What was the amount? I can't recall. Yeah, okay. probably in double digits. And I guess at that point, that's for your model specifically hype. That's when you guys take the hands off a bit. It really depends on the startups. Um, sometimes we've built enough experience or know-how, mm-hmm. uh, or trained people in the team, or given them the playbook, so that they can take it and build the next market. Mm-hmm. Um, or sometimes they might not have people to do it, so we might stay on a little longer or look at the second market. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the founder. But of course, our goal is to help them build that facility internally so that they don't have to always rely on us. Would you say Homage is the biggest success or what else in the portfolio would you say that's very successful? So for Hype, we've actually also helped a company called Goat. Uh, They're a US, uh, LA-based company. Um, They are a uh, platform for uh, sneakers trading. Ah, Uh, So basically any kind of, uh, you know, limited edition shoes, uh, you can trade it on the platform and the platform will, will sort of screen it and uh, arrange all the logistics and payments and everything. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
uh, we actually helped them launch in China. So actually, China is one oh, of into our, China, yes. into China, yeah. yeah. So China is one of our big markets because it's a really, really difficult market to crack, especially for US companies. Yeah. Um, so I think taking from the experience of how my ex colleagues have built Airbnb or launched Airbnb in China, uh, they've used that as a um, you know experience to help other US companies yeah. enter China as well. That's uh, very incredible, and is, is Goat doing well in China? Goat's doing well. I think they've yeah. uh, you know now uh, make, make up a quite a good portion of their business uh, globally within yeah. a short amount of time, mm-hmm. and it's also a good story for them uh, yeah. to be able to uh, open up a, such a such a big market. Yeah, uh, and a good story to their investors as well. And I think that's really critical. I, mean, I think everyone knows uh, infamously the rocket blunder for Groupon China. That was a, a huge loss. And not everyone can you know, go into China. I see a lot of Southeast Asian companies are opting to expand to Indonesia, Vietnam, the more popular, bigger populist countries uh, to tackle first. And um, Which is interesting where you see the other trend in China. They're getting a lot of founders are getting squeezed out. So they come to Southeast Asia, but then you know, that's a whole different dynamic. So I think that's, that's a great, it's great to hear there's a success. Yeah, for Southeast Asia companies that want to go into China, I think one thing that they will realize as soon as they're done with their research work is that, um, well, first of all, uh, it's super competitive. Yeah. Uh, second of all, it's such a, such a large market that requires a complete overhaul of mm-hmm. everything that you are currently doing. Yeah. Uh, and you will almost have to build another company. Yeah. You know? uh, so so, so uh, a lot of founders are not ready to yeah. take that leap while there are still so many you know, markets to cover uh, around them. Mm-hmm. Right? So why are you making that big leap mm-hmm. unless you have some strategic reasons or investors or a particular product um, to go into China? Otherwise, mm-hmm. you are really you know, uh, you're, you're not setting yourself up for success. And, and the moral of the story is then you should go find hype, right? Uh, yeah, you can. Make <laughs> colleague still there. Yeah, I, I'm not being paid by hype. I'm just joking, guys. But that is, it does sound like a very good option and some good opportunity for people looking to expand to China um, as an option. You know, for people who are experienced the connections, it is a different world. Um, so, what does that mean? What's next for hype? Or what does that mean? Raising more rounds, investing, same model? Is it successful? Do you think? So, I mean, I'm actually a venture partner with them right now, okay. which means you know, kind of, kind of more of a EIR model uh, where I'm. Uh, Advisor. Ah, okay. So that's what it means. Since I moved on, yeah, okay. correct. Um, so I'm not I'm not full time with them. Uh, however, I know that um, they are focused on their existing portfolio right now. I think with the COVID situation, uh, growth might not always be priority for mm. most uh, companies. Uh, what more for startups? Yeah. I think survival survival is yes. top of mind. Uh, so I'm not so clear on what's the latest on. on with hype right now, but what I understand is they're still working with a lot of portfolio companies. Makes sense uh, to, yeah. to see some of the projects through, and then next steps will be either um, you know looking at a, a new model. Uh, I believe prior to leaving, they were looking at uh, to, to make more uh, operating investing models mm-hmm. uh, in which they will invest in the companies that they work with, right? Just to get more alignment uh, yeah. when you go into a new market. I believe that was the direction that they want to go with. Um, and does this this hype really do they? invest onto the next round always or they just try to stick to one round and then so start we have in some cases we've actually built it in uh, with the founders where we will get certain uh, sort of warrants uh, yeah. for, for next rounds yeah. I'm not clear whether they have executed some of okay. these deals but, um, but from what I know we typically negotiate this into our deals okay. which, which and uh, it's a win-win right yeah you know, makes we sense wanna, we want to continue to build the relationship yeah and you took the risk early on alright yeah Okay, that's so. Would you say it's a very viable founder for you know uh, option for founders? Should I be going to look for a venture builder in the future? Because I I'm kind of skeptical. I feel you know hearing your story about this, it does make it sound very attractive. It sounds like it's doing well, but you know a lot of other times I think there's other venture builders in the region where you know it's still have a good reputation. Yeah, I think it really depends on uh, your company. I think we might not be um, suitable for every types of business models. Uh, I think what we've done particularly well is in, in marketplaces. Yeah. And typically, business models that require, uh, that are heavily operational in the early days, the setup days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, if the market is further away from you and you don't understand it, yeah. I think typically that's where the value, uh, because of the arbitrage, right, yeah. the value is usually there. Yeah. But if you are, say, you know, a Southeast Asia business uh, and looking to expand just next door or near, nearby, and you already have some people you can trade, then why not? Um, but if you don't have the internal know-how, I think this is the best way for you to accelerate your learnings mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to reduce the mistakes that you can make. Because essentially, we're doing what you can potentially do, but at half the time and half the mistakes made. 
That is essentially what the venture builders are for. So it's a much more hands-on accelerator, actual execution. Uh, kind of get more resources. So right. I guess it would be great if we could get the, the Homage co-founder on the pod to, to, <laughs> sure, to, 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 yeah, to test it out. happy to introduce yeah. you okay. But you know, they're super busy right now with COVID. Of course, obviously. understand. Yeah. Especially on the health healthcare yeah. side. Yeah. That makes makes a lot of sense. And that, I think there'll be some great stories to hear from there. Um, so I guess on the flip side, you know, we talked about early day scaling uh, Airbnb. We talked about what's a venture builder. Then uh, you have, you know, this very nice title here, Mentor 500 Startups. <laughs> Uh, mentor so of Singapore Tourism I have an explanation behind that. Sure. So I think if over the years, um, you know, once you're once you dabble around and been on the street, you know, um, uh, you know, people will, will come to you and ask for advice, ask for help. Uh, you know, for me, it's it's a way to give back to the community. Actually, there's a there's a more selfish re- selfish reason behind that um, uh, because I'm I, I I'm, I've moved back to. I guess a SME arrangement where I'm working with traditional business, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I was afraid my exposure—not to say my exposure, but my uh, uh, my uh, my understanding of the tech world will reduce if I'm if I'm if I'm mm-hmm. disconnected. So uh, being being a mentor, I guess one is to you know help other startups. Uh, second yeah. is also to keep myself informed with yeah. some of the trends. Uh, but it's been a good experience. Like uh, mm-hmm. you know, of, of course, all this was. Uh, just chanced upon through networks, yeah. um, but in the end, it was just helping the community. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I pondered for a long time whether I should put it up on LinkedIn because it's always one of those, you know, flashy things <laughs> that you put up there. But, Very humble. Uh, you know, but but it, it's it's uh, it it helps me to convert my LinkedIn random messages to people. Um, yeah. And, and for my pers- for my for my selfish reasons, I would say. I mean, it's it's definitely you know a bit of prestige there. It's it's good branding, and I think you know. But to be honest, I think you also have some good. Uh, intentions there. You know? Hopefully, hopefully. And I, I, I hope my I hope my friends at uh, Five Hundred Startup and uh, and STB or uh, you know the guys that found it won't won't listen to this. But well, I, I, I think they should. For the opportunity. <laughs> I think they should because if they heard what you've been talking about, your experience, it's well deserved, well earned. I think the, anyone who you mentor and you've even helped me a lot. You know, I think it's it's very valuable. Um, that being said, though. Uh, what is the reputation of accelerators in the region itself? Uh, I think 500 Startups is a very famous global brand itself. I'm sure the government in Singapore probably has some credibility, but is there real add value? Should should I really care about you know accelerators in, in Southeast Asia or maybe North Asia specifically? Well, uh, personally, I haven't interacted that much with accelerators. Uh, of course, uh, I think for 500, yeah. They're also quite relatively new to some markets, yes. right? Because they're not they're not active in all markets. Many markets, but not all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, their investment arm was more active the last couple of, uh, or actually many years. Um, and uh, on the accelerator side, they've just been looking at partnering partnering with different organizations. Uh, some government, some are private, some are corporate, yeah. to really uh, I guess help these larger organizations enter into this in this in this community. Mm-hmm. So. Based on just the two experience I have, I think it's good. It's good how they've managed to bring the ecosystem together between the corporate world and the startup world, and they actually have real, uh, you know, real goals and targets for them to achieve certain level of milestones uh, in terms of getting projects right, mm-hmm. like a pilot program. Uh, so I think in that sense, that was quite beneficial. I mean, when I when I look at these startups and and the resources that they get to tap onto, I think that's really mm-hmm. uh, beneficial. So purely on this model, I feel like there's some add value, uh, and, and it really depends on the people who run it as well, uh, how connected they are, and how uh, you know how, how 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 much initiative they take to mm-hmm. make these introductions or help you give advice as well. And uh, you're saying this is for both 500 and uh, Singapore tourism, yeah, right, right? Okay. But for the rest, I mean, I can't really judge, uh, you know, because yeah. there's so many out there. I guess it would be good, you know, if we ever have a follow-up podcast, we could, you know, if you do go through some mentorship, you could, Perhaps. yeah, we, we could hear. And then how, is there anyone you're mentoring now, or? Yeah, I'm mentoring a few uh, startups. Uh, one in particular is a voice AI company, and they're based out of the U.S. and India. Okay. Wow. Uh, of course, I can't go into too much details of yeah. the, the, the companies that I'm speaking to, but I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think when I was initially presented this company to be paired with, I was worried that I knew, I knew nothing about voice AI, yeah. um, but you know, the, the organizer wanted me to help them just in general understanding the region, Southeast Asia and the market, 
so I decided to take it on anyway. Uh, and it turns out that I'm learning a lot more from them <laughs> because it's so cool. Like you know, I I I I, I love the movie. Was it she or her? I always forget. Her, 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 yeah, her. her yeah. And uh, with Scarlett Johansson's voice as a yeah, like I always dream of the day <laughs> to have Scarlett Johansson as my uh, you know a personal yeah. assistant over voice. No. And uh, of course, we're far, far away from that. Yeah. But by you know, of course, uh, advising this company, I mean they're also giving me new knowledge. Uh, I was able to learn more about the world of uh, uh, voice AI and how it's going to change yeah. certain part of. Uh, how businesses are run. I think particularly they're targeting you know, more on the customer experience side where certain customer inquiries can be automated. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking at chat, but um, what's stopping them from elevating it to voice experience? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's interesting you bring up voice and a coincidence because I've been going down a little bit of rabbit hole too, you know, researching that and trying to learn that because I, I, I too find that very fascinating. Mm-hmm. I would love to just have that next generation, but it's like you said, we're still quite far we're off, very, I think. Uh, but they're, they're making a lot of progress every day. There's a lot of new innovation. Um, so we'll, we'll see, I guess, in time. So uh, I guess this leads up to the, the last section, you know, you had an amazing experience for the past, um, what, six years? Seven, seven years. Seven years. And uh, you all of a sudden decide to leave the tech world. Well, what's going on? Why? Well, I wouldn't say I've left the tech world. I think it's a bit dramatic. Um, and honestly, tech is so, like, tech is so permeable and it's, it's you can't avoid it. Yeah. Um, so I would like to think that I am going back to the traditional world and trying to bring tech into it. Okay. Um, so, so tech is, you know, again, tech is so general anyway. Like I, yeah, I, that's true. You know, I think there are some best practices from running tech businesses, but they're sometimes not necessarily tech. Um, but uh, these best practices can help other businesses, right? For example, my family business. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a bit, a bit personal, of course. Uh, as all of you listeners know, family business is personal. Um, and uh, for me, it was uh, coming full circle. So my yeah. family had been running an uh, insurance advisory business for the last 38 years. What's the uh, name? Uh, they're called Entola. Entola. And, and, and that's the thing about uh, family business or, or traditional business is, is literally the name of the three founders. Andrew, <laughs> Thomas, and Lawrence. So okay. Thomas is my dad's name. Andrew is one of our business partners. Uh, honestly, I don't know who Lawrence is until today, but he's there. Um, but uh, you know that's that's a amalgamation of you know the three prefix of, uh, of of the founder's name. Um, but it's become uh, I would like to think it's become a household name in the you know the commercial insurance with mostly B two B. You know we do a lot of uh, casual property and casualty insurance. We help businesses manage their risks and uh, you know advise them on the right type of uh, insurance to get to to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the event of any kind of claims, you know, we are always there to help them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, resolve their, their claims. Uh, essentially, getting the insurance companies to pay them, uh, of course, based on the policy, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, over the last 38 years, they've built this business from nothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, I'm only new to this. I'm slowly finding out things about how they've run the business, uh, how they've struggled building the business. And, and dotting it to my own personal childhood days where <laughs> I was just being a, you know, a rebellious kid and not really understanding the yeah. pains that they were going through. Um, but uh, you know, finding, finding, a lot more, finding a lot more value in, in their work now yeah. uh, and respect, actually. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and over time, and, and suddenly this whole burden of like making sure that I can go sure, the yeah. business or keep it for another 38 years or yeah. if I can for, for at least for that amount of time. Um, but uh, also excited, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much opportunities mm-hmm. in this space. And for me, of course, it's personal to be back in the family so that I can help my mom. Uh, of course, my, my, my dad had passed on uh, four years ago, so, mm-hmm. so it's, it's just her and close to 30 staff. And, uh, you know, trying to, trying to look at ways to bring this business into the next age, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and that's kind of where my mind is right now. Yeah, I mean that's, a, that's kind of like a, a beautiful story. We think it's like a coming of age story of, <laughs> of rebellion, and then you growing up and experiencing all these great things, and then and now you're coming back to you know contribute what you've learned. Um, is this a trend we should be seeing? Like, a, if you think about the history of Southeast Asia and Asia after World War II, you know all this industrial wealth was created, uh, licenses were given out, monopolies were mm. determined, and every every country's kind of entrenched in themselves, and it's like they have this uh, wealth accumulated. Um, 
Are we going to see more founders? Are, are people actually, you know, are they going into families already? Are they leaving, coming back? What's, what's the trend? What do you see? I mean, you, it, you already see a lot of, um, uh, you know, I guess second generation uh, taking over the business. Or, or you know, they're, they're, if you look around Malaysia, even you see that. Um, but I guess it really depends on the sizes of the, these companies. Uh, you know how large they are. Uh, you know because there's a trade-off, right? Like ultimately, if the business is small, uh, why would I give up my you know you know ten twenty thousand dollars job with whatever a consulting or a bank or uh, yeah. So, so it is a trade-off uh, for these second generation or, or third generation. Um, but I think that, uh, I think probably Southeast Asia still, it's, it's still a relatively young regions where, like you said, right, the, the accumulation of wealth and people are still handing over uh, these wealth. And of course, maybe there's not that as many publicly listed companies where these companies then become more publicly owned or, yeah. or venture owned even. And even the businesses that were built in the early days, I mean, never really relied on investment money. Yeah. You know, these are True. all bootstrap. Like yeah. I, when I look through the history of it's, <laughs> it's literally bootstrap of thirty eight years. Yeah. And and bootstrap when markets are tough, uh, business practices are unfair. Sometimes it's uh, you know not to say corruption, um, you know all all kinds of storms hitting them right yeah. and and and. Uh, and, and they still manage to survive. Uh, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I can't really say what's the trend, but I, I, I do hope that people do consider it because, uh, you know, these businesses really need yeah. help. Uh, and, uh, and there are good opportunities, uh, especially if your industry is not disrupted or not, uh, you know, not, not embracing tech yet. Would it, would it be important to leave the context like you did to come in with a new lens to help innovate? Or do you think it's possible? Because I have a lot of young interns who, you know, they, their families are quite wealthy and they kind of have that kind of question, you know, should I just go to my family or should I just, you know, just leave? Or what do you think? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I see, I, I definitely have friends who've done both. Okay. So uh, it, it's a, quite a good comparison. Uh, personally, for me, I, because I, my, my late father was running the business and uh, I, I, I often felt like it was very difficult for me to, uh, with very different mindsets, learn with him or learn through him. So I opted to go out first. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess this is a bit of an ego thing as well where you, I want to get outside experience. Yeah. Um, and and it really, it, it's really different depending on the dynamics. Um, both has its pros and cons. Uh, for me, I, I wanted to go out because uh, in my mind, if I don't, go out and get those experiences if I just started out with the family business I will likely not get out of it yeah. so with family businesses once you're in you're in like you, you can't get out you can only maybe build a business bigger and maybe find a succession, succession plan but that will take time yeah. so um, you know it was my window opportunity to go out and get those experiences to meet people get outside network and I was very fortunate that both my parents were very supportive uh, and then eventually come back. I mean, as long as the word here is eventually come back, uh, as long as I give them that assurance, or you know, once a while join for their join in for their networking dinners, or yeah, I'll come back and meet their business show, partners, show face, show face. <laughs> uh, then I think then I think it, it, it makes sense. Um, but but if you do have a, a good uh, you know a, a good good team or a good mentor and, and a good succession plan in place for you, there's no reason why you should, why you can't. Start off right away. I think it really depends. No, yeah, I want to highlight that because um, I do want to point out. You know, even though if you know you're joining a family business, it's not as bad as you probably think. It's it's a foundation. I think people don't realize it's not sexy to do startups. It's not fun. It's actually very painful. You know, we, we sound like we're talking about glorious war stories and all these kind of things, but at the end of the day, you know, if, if you have that done for you, uh, you can still be an entrepreneur. You could still innovate. Absolutely. You can still add value. So I think that's important on one side of, you know, the, the entrepreneurship side and, you know, building out innovation. On the other side, you know, if it is a trend, you know, it's somewhere, you know, investment money you could also look to. 
sure. right? You know, through partnerships or you know other initiatives that they're looking for. I think it's it's a good opportunity in the region because that money transfer has to happen. Um, the young people are hungry for change, like yourself. And I guess that leads me to my next question. Next question: uh, What what do we expect then? What, what's going to happen? What's happening in the world of insurance? Uh, what's what's the, the the big ideas? What, what can I, we expect? I talking about insurance, everyone will fall asleep. <laughs> so I, I try to stay I, away. I don't, you know. Uh, for me, I think at least in, in my position right now, uh, you, you have to understand the world that I've been working in the last couple of years and the world of insurance, especially in Malaysia and especially in an agency, is completely different. So, uh, you know, but that doesn't mean that there are not many things for me to learn. In fact, there's, there's shit tons of things for me to learn. Uh, for me, it's, it's important to put my head, ground, head, uh, on the, uh, head down and foot on the ground to learn about the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, most importantly, what are the pain points? I think I just want to, as entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. I always think like, what's the pain point? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's bugging my, my customers? What's bugging my, my employees? What's bugging the insurers? Like, what is mm-hmm. the biggest pain point? And then start from there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't have, I mean, I have some grand vision, but I, I've learned from my experience starting my first company. V- vision is always just vision. Uh, and, and sometimes you should just keep it to yourself first. Uh, you know, get the right, get the get the data, get the knowledge, and then and then mold it. Mm. So, uh, but Flexible. ultimately, for me, is about uh, you know what, what is what is so annoying about buying insurance today. Like, just think about this: so many touch points. Uh, either you're as a consumer or as a business owners. Um, uh, I, I want to hear about that, mm. uh, and then from there, you know, shape whatever it is that mm. this region needs. I think the the easy mistake to do is think about what other country has, has built, you know, whatever, lemonade or you know, any kind of digital insurance and just copy and paste it here. It might not work, right? Yeah. Because we have such a That's different true. setup. We might need completely, something that's completely different. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, like I said, is to, uh, you know, solve the pain points of yeah. uh, all the stakeholders and really bring, uh, you know, make, make insurance buying a good experience. Yeah. So that's just the baseline. Well, as, as a consumer, I guess I could give you one pain point. Um, I'm at the age where I should have more insurance coverage probably. I probably have less than I probably should. And I think um, discovery, I don't even know what is available. Mm. And I think recently I was browsing a pretty famous one in the U.S., I think Policy Genius. Mm. And they've done a really good job of, you know, just questionnaire you fill out and then they give you the options. Whereas I think in Southeast Asia we see just um, a lot of lead generation. Mm. But it means you have to know what you're looking for already input it and then see your options but you don't even know what you're missing so i think that's the you know i think that's what i see from a consumer and i don't know is there anything you just very high level simple you think you'd want to tackle maybe that it's opportunity for investors opportunity for entrepreneurs yeah i mean when you look at the whole pillars of insurance there are a few parts um uh, customer acquisition uh, so that's kind of like on the on the marketing side uh, uh, part uh then you have the underwriting part which is everything that goes in between. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of big data involved. Uh, and then you have the claims part, which is when insurance have to pay out money. Mm-hmm. So typically startups will pick one pillar to innovate, right? Uh, customer acquisition, I think you get a very, uh, I think for people like Policy Street and uh, Go Compare, like this kind of comparison sites are looking into that, like lead generation, uh, and then feed it in into uh, to the insurers. Uh, and then on the, the, the big data part, you get a lot of companies that you know helps uh, insurance companies build systems to get the right pricing uh, and then claims is usually how you manage the payouts and the whole process so I mean honestly I'm, I'm still trying to trying to figure things out but at least as an agency I think the whole comparison journey is uh, you know it's, it's, it's not ideal mm-hmm. um, and we deal with a lot of commercial insurance so if you're talking about personal insurance like travel moto I think that's fine it's the it's the other part of insurance that is is, is uh, the untapped market. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I just want to make that experience better. Uh, I want I want customers. I want to give more transparency and comparisons to to, to the to the customers out there. But honestly, ultimately, uh, I wanna I wanna change the whole customer journey. Like because what a lot of companies are doing is they're fixing one pillar, but when the other two pillars are broken, it's not a good end to an experience. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, insurance companies today, they, they rely on too many distributors. They can't really keep track on all their different channels um, and uh, the experience are, are not optimal for consumers. Like, experience are optimal for agents to sell more policies, to make more commission. I'm, I'm one of the agencies, so you know, I'm a beneficiary of this yeah. uh, legacy, of course. but uh, it will have to shift because uh, cost of insurance is, is going up and up. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the reason is because there's too many layers 
Mm. Uh, so, so it's how, how do we bring down those layers and, and build what's mm. best for uh, the consumers and people in the communities. Yeah. And I think you have the right approach. I think a bottom-up approach, uh, looking for the value and looking for the pain points. Um, and I, I think you're, you're on the right track. So I guess then the last part is, you know, what, what's the call to action? How can we help you? What are you looking for? Are you looking to hire? Are you looking for investment? Are you looking for partnerships? Or I'm always looking to talk to people. Um, you know, two parts. Uh, hiring is always, to me, after building businesses in the last few years, uh, your hiring hat should always be on. Yeah. Like, even when I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about hiring you for whatever <laughs> purposes. Okay. Um, you know, or, or someone I'm talking to uh, might be might be helpful for me to mm-hmm. build something. Yeah. Hiring not just from an employee standpoint, but building businesses together. Um, primarily for me is to, to talk to people who are in the insurance space mm-hmm. and maybe can share more about their pain, pain points with me. Um, and, and then, of course, hiring. We do have some roles available. Uh, I'm trying to introduce things that are not used that traditional businesses are not used to in the yeah. business. So like uh, digital marketing, looking at end-to-end experience of lead generation, content marketing, um, looking at building uh, you know, business operations and strategy in my current organization, looking at how can we do better data reporting, uh, have better way of analyzing our own data, uh, get better insights, and then also looking at someone uh, to do HR. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have a lot of staff who wants to up-level and, and you know, get access to knowledge and have a, have a way to structure our whole internal growth growth plans and personal development plans. I think uh, those are the three areas that I want to look at and, and hopefully can hire people in those areas as well. Okay, so you guys heard it from Kevin himself. You heard his story, a great mentor, a great leader, a great manager. Uh, if you're in, interested in the sexy insurance space, um, you know, if you're looking to innovate an old industry that seems to be on its way out, uh, how can we reach you? Uh, you can email me at kevin.home at gmail.com. How do you spell that? Uh, K-E-V-I-N dot H-O-O-N-G at gmail.com. Okay, great. And uh, hopefully, does, does, does this mean you're forever at Insurance Kevin now? Or we see you starting more companies in the future? Or... Well, you know, the funny thing is, um, uh, you know, I always tell my friends that uh, I've now moved to insurance and I want to meet up for a coffee. And uh, <laughs> I assess my level of friendship by their reaction. So uh, if, if, if one of you out there uh, get a message from me, uh, you, you know what this is about. But no, I won't just be uh, in insurance. I'm always looking at new ideas and new ways to build businesses. And that's why we are good friends. I called you for a podcast, even <laughs> yes, though you moved to insurance. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing. And that's all we have. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you for tuning into our first episode. It was intimidating at first. Uh, there's a lot to improve. You know, there's the bar is really high in terms of good podcasts out there. Our sound quality has to improve. Our content, our format everything so uh in the meantime please go to entrepreneursofasia.com and check out the podcast section and comment for episode one let us know what you think uh what was good what was bad uh what kind of guests do you want to hear coming up what kind of content do you want to learn from and a big shout out to brian sue chief innovation officer at firefighter industries where we are recording this episode and where brian will be helping produce the video content coming up we look forward to seeing you next week for episode two